Now, friends, we come back to Isaiah, the prophet, here in the 19th chapter. He comes to the foreground, actually, for the first time. And it's during the reign of Hezekiah. Now, we saw last time that this man, Hezekiah, came to the throne at a time when it was very troubled and disturbed and uncertain in that land. The northern kingdom was taken into captivity by Assyria. Now, the army of Assyria has come to the very gates of Jerusalem. And this is enough to frighten Hezekiah. And added to that, Rabshakeh, who is the henchman of the king of Assyria, why, he is outside the gate and he is sending out taunts and insults and making great boasting about what the king of Assyria is going to do to Jerusalem. And he threatens them. He said that the king of Assyria is going to take Jerusalem, going to take the people into captivity. Then he says, your God will not deliver you. And the reason he gives is none of the gods of the other people that we've captured has helped them a bit. Poor Hezekiah wilts under this, and naturally he would, because this man is just learning to turn to the Lord and to trust him. And so he appeals now to Isaiah, God's prophet. And I begin reading now at chapter 19, verse 1. It came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, that is, heard all of this boasting, ranting, and threatening, why it disturbed him. And he ran his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. That's a good place to go when you are in a mental turmoil that this man is in. It's time to turn to God. And we find here that he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. Now he wants a word from God. I wonder if you've noted in these days in which we're living, we talk about we're a Christian nation, and we think of poor old King Hezekiah was sort of a pagan anyway, half-pagan and that people in that day were very pagan, and we are very sophisticated today, and that we are Christian. But we're not. Have you ever heard today in all of our disturbed conditions, have you ever heard of any politician, any educator, any great leader, any military man, anyone in a high position today suggesting that we turn to God and that we appeal to him, and that we look to him for deliverance? No, may I say that today they listen to this expert and this man who is a brain. He has a very high IQ, and he is one that can advise. These are the men that are listened to today, and they've been listened to now, friends, ever since I was a young man. And that's a long span now. And we get farther and farther into the night. Our problems are mounting. Our difficulties are overwhelming us today. And nowhere do you hear anyone, not even in the church today, is there an appeal to God, to turn to God in this dark and late hour in the history of our nation. Well, we are 200 years old. And we're a young nation, and we're already old and on the way out. The life of most nations has been, I'm told, around 200 years. Well, we've had it. It looks like we've had it. But there's no turning to God today. I believe that there was a sincere turning to God. Instead of an appeal to God, it's always, let's get together. Let's join up. Let's try a new approach. Let's get a new method. Let's call in an expert. Let's work on this from a different angle. Let's get an authority in a certain field, psychology or medicine or government. 
our education, and they're going to show the way out. My friend, all of these great experts have moved us farther into the night. We're in trouble today. We need God. No nation ever needed God as this nation needs God at this hour in which we're living. Thank God old Hezekiah, if you want to call him half-pagan, go ahead and call him that. We need some half-pagans today then, because this man called on God. And now he calls for Isaiah. Now will you notice verse 3. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble, and of rebuke, and blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there's not strength to bring forth. It may be that the Lord thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, hath sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Now, they brought this message. But he didn't say, even this man didn't say, our God. He says, thy God. Poor Hezekiah. Yes, maybe he's a half-pagan, but he's got sense enough to appeal to God in a time like this. In fact, he hasn't any other place to go at this present moment. Now, verse 6, And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I'll send a blast upon him. He shall hear a rumor, and shall return to his own land, and I'll cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now, this, may I say, was literally fulfilled, by the way, in a most wonderful way. But notice the encouragement that Isaiah gives to the king. He said, don't worry about this man. He's not going to come into your city. He's just a blowhard. He's just boasting and blaspheming. But God has heard him. God's going to deal with him. You do not need to worry. Or if we'd only learn to let God deal with our enemies. The trouble of it is, we deal with them, and then we remove ourselves from the place of faith, trusting God, and then God doesn't move in our behalf. And as a result, why, we come off on the short end of a deal. When if we just turn it over to the Lord, the Lord would handle it lots better than we would, as he did in this case. Now, instead, though, of something happening immediately to the king of Assyria and the Assyrian army, why, they came back. They returned and camped outside of the city of Jerusalem again. Now, notice verse 8. So Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. And when he heard say of Perhaka, King of Ethiopia, behold, he's come out to fight against thee. He sent messengers again unto Hezekiah. Now, here they come. They're outside the wall again. Listen to this. Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands. By destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the children of Eden, which were in Thelaser? Where is the king of Hamath, and the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvim, of Hena, and Iva? Believe me, this is disturbing to Hezekiah. The king of Assyria swept everything before him. Why does Hezekiah think he will escape? And Hezekiah received the letter. See, he gets a letter now of the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. My friend... That's the place where you and I need to spread that disturbing letter that you receive. 
And we get some wonderful letters here on radio. We get some of the other kind, too, by the way. But may I say that we've learned a long time ago, we just turn these over to the Lord, let him work the problem out. And so far, he's done a very good job at that sort of thing. Hezekiah's doing a very wise thing. He spreads the letter out before the Lord. Spread out your problem, your trouble, before the Lord, friends. That's where you need to take your troubles, need to take your problems. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, and Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent him to reproach the living God. Martin Luther, by the way, prayed like that. I have several prayers of Martin Luther. And the way that man prayed, we ought to pray, I think, like that today. My, how these men could lay hold to God. Martin Luther could say, Lord, are you hearing me? Lord, hear me. Lord, let your ear be open to my prayer. And he cry out to God. You ever feel like that? Maybe God wasn't listening to you. Now, that's the way Hezekiah felt. He says, of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations in their land. This man's told the truth. He's not boasting when he says that they've swept everything before them. And they've cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they've destroyed them. Now, therefore, Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Now, God's going to answer his prayer. Sends Isaiah, verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. I heard your prayer. You didn't have to shout. <laughs> I heard you all the time. This is the word that the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee, and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed, and against whom hast thou exalted thy voice, and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? Now, he goes on to say here that God intends to destroy the army of Assyria. And God says, Hast thou not heard, verse 25, long ago, how I've done it, and of ancient times have I formed it? Now have I brought it to pass that thou shouldst be to lay waste fenced cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops, and as corn blasted before it's grown up. But I know thy abode and thy going out and thy coming in, thy rage against me. Because thy rage against me and thy tumult has come up into mine ears, therefore I'll put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I'll turn thee back by the way which thou camest. God says, you're coming down into my land. You've made your boast, but I'm going to put hooks in your jaws. I'll pull you right up out of the land. I'm going to send you back home, give you a good spanking, and send you home. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such things as grow of themselves. And in the second year that which springeth of the same. And in the third year sow ye and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruits thereof. In other words, God says he won't even be able to get the crop that is growing out in the fields right now. And he goes on and makes this statement, And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, shall do this. 
Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. Now you see Isaiah's making a very bold statement, but of course, he's giving the word of the Lord. And the question is, is Isaiah a true prophet? You see, when Isaiah said a virgin shall conceive, bring forth a child, somebody said, my, that's a great prophecy. When will it take place? Suppose he'd say, well, be 700 years. And I'm sure there are a great many folk would look at each other and say, well, brother Isaiah, we don't know whether that'll be true or not. None of us will be around. But now there is an enemy outside the gates of Jerusalem. Assyria has swept everything before them. All nations have fallen before them, and they were feared and dreaded in the ancient world. They've come to the gates of Jerusalem and withdrawn. Now God says their army will be out there, but they are not even going to be able to besiege this city. They'll not even shoot an arrow into the city. Now you think that over for a moment. There are a hundred thousand soldiers around the walls of Jerusalem. Out of that many, you'd certainly find some trigger-happy soldier with a bow and arrow, and maybe he just wants to see what might happen, and he puts an arrow in a bow, he pulls the bow, and shoots it over the wall of Jerusalem. My friend, if he does that, Isaiah is not a true prophet of God. God says not an arrow is going to fall in that city. And he says it by the mouth of Isaiah. Now, that's the way you tell whether a prophet's true or not. false prophet could never have made a statement like that. Now, God says, I'm going to save this city. And the reason I'm going to save it is this, by the way that he came by, the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake. God does many things for his name's sake. And for my servant David's sake. That's important too. You see, God loved David. He did many things for David's sake. And friends, David had a greater son, a virgin-born son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God does many things for him. He'll save sinners that will trust him as Savior. It's a wonderful thing. For my servant David's sake, for Christ's sake. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. God does it for him, not for us. Now, it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out, and he smote in the camp of the Syrians a hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. You know, I love the way this translation has it. When they woke in the morning, they were all dead corpses. Well, friends, they didn't wake in the morning. <laughs> they didn't wake. Why didn't they wake? Well, they were dead. Those that did wake up found out that there were about 185,000 dead out there. They didn't wake up. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, and he went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Ezer Hayden, his son, reigned in his stead. Isn't that interesting? That prophecy was literally fulfilled in that day. Now, friends, we come back to this man, Hezekiah. He is a king that's outstanding. Fact of the matter is, he's labeled here as a king that there was none like him after David. And there's none that came after him that could compare to him at all. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father did. That's the testimony that's given to him. There's no king after him that was like him. And among the kings of Judah, not any that were before him, none to compare to Hezekiah. But now this man takes sick. And we read, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. 
And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Now, this is recorded three times in the Scriptures. recorded here in 2 Kings 20, and you'll find it in 2 Chronicles 32, and you'll find it in the 38th chapter of Isaiah. And each one adds a little something that the other does not add. I intend to deal with it more thoroughly when we get to Isaiah, but there are certain things here that I'd like to call attention to. This was, I think, a very difficult task that Isaiah had of delivering a death sentence to Hezekiah the king. And very candidly, though, doesn't make any difference who you are today. This sentence of death rests upon each one of us, although we do not know the day nor hour. It's appointed unto man once to die. Now, this is a divine date. If each one of us knew the exact time, would it actually not change our way of living? That is something that a great many, even Christians, say, well, that's something that's way off down yonder in the future. We won't worry about it. Well, we may not worry about it, but we at least ought to live knowing that that is and will be the ultimate goal. Some time ago here in Southern California, before I had cancer, a very fine young minister, he was told by his doctor that cancer had recurred and that his days were limited. And he sent out a letter to some of his friends, and I was privileged to be included in that list. Very frankly, I was shaken when I read it. And I'd like to give you a quotation from his letter. He says, One thing... I have discovered in the last few days, when a Christian is suddenly confronted with a sentence of death, he surely begins to give a proper evaluation of material things. My fishing gear and books and orchard are not nearly so valuable as they were a week ago. Now, with that in mind, let's look at this, and then I want to give a personal testimony today. Will you notice? In verse 2 he says, Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept so. I think I understand his position, and I think probably you would understand if, suppose that you were told that you had cancer, and you didn't know what the outcome would be, and the doctor didn't know. I very frankly felt all my life and my ministry when I'd go to see people with cancer, I could understand how they could have cancer, but I never could understand that I would ever have it. And it rocked me when the doctor told me that I had cancer. I couldn't believe it. Then when I had to believe it and was not given any assurance at all because it didn't know and I have none today, I just know I had it. <laughs> May I say to you, it gives you a different sense of values. Life is a little different. A great many people have wondered about my conduct in certain areas. Why did I resign? past of a church when I'm still active. Well, those things are not nearly as important today. I have no ambition in the ministry. God gave me the privilege of being past of a church probably during its heyday and of having in my time the largest midweek service that has probably been in this day and generation. I consider that a privilege. And I have no ambition. I want now to live in such a way that I'm going to please the Lord. And you know something? It's caused me to change in many different ways. Someone said to me the other day, said, you're trying to kill yourself in carrying on this radio and holding conferences. You know, I'm afraid I'm going to displease him. I turned my face to the wall when I was taken to the hospital and didn't know what the outcome would be. 
I said to the nurse, I couldn't get in bed. I was so weak. And not physically weak. I was frightened, friends. I'm a coward. And so she said, are you sick? I said, no, I'm scared to death. She's a Christian nurse. She actually smiled at that. And I said, let me alone here for a little while. She said, we want to get you ready for the operation. I turned my face to the wall, and I cried out to God. I told him I didn't want to die. And I didn't want to die, friends. Miss Stewart, who was the editor of the Amplified Bible, she's since gone to be with the Lord. She and I carried on quite a bit of correspondence over the years, almost a running battle, because I questioned her on some of her translations, and very candidly, she changed several that I called attention to, and so she and I had quite a bit going. And she wrote me, while others and I announced it on radio and asked everybody to pray, because I believe in faith healing. I don't believe in faith healers. I do believe that we ought to take these things to God in prayer, and I asked people to pray. And she wrote me, and she says, I'm not going to pray that you get well, because I know you are ready to go and be with the Lord, so I'm just praying that he'll take you. Well, I got an answer back to her in a hurry. I said, now, look here. I said, you let the Lord handle this. Don't you try to tell him how I feel. I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to live as long as I can. And therefore, I've been afraid since then not to do as much as I can, because at that time, when I turned my face to the wall, I promised him. I said, Lord, if you'll raise me up, I'll teach your word everywhere I can go. And that's what I've been trying to do. I don't want to let him down because I don't want him to say, well, look here, preacher, I'll have to call you home because you're not doing what you said you'd do. And that's the reason I'm going to keep it up, friends. May I say to you, you have a different outlook on life when you're in a position like this. And it's wonderful, though. Somebody says, well, it's wonderful to see you trust the Lord. I said, I'd like to know what else I could do. I'm in the place where actually the doctor says he can't help me. And he very frankly says, what's happened so far, I'm not healed. But he very frankly is a wonderful Christian. He said, God did this for you. And you know something? I wanted to know why he sent me the bill. If God did it, because God's never sent me a bill on this at all. It's wonderful, friends, to be in a position, very frankly, where you do have to trust the Lord. I have no other alternative. Where in the world am I going to go? I'm trusting the Lord. And when I say that, I'm not being pious. It is forced on me. Now, let me move on here, because this is a tremendous section. He says, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart. Well, I couldn't say that. And I've done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. He called attention to his good works, and he had them, by the way. I didn't call attention to any. I just put myself on the grace of the Lord that's in Christ Jesus. Now it came to pass, before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again, tell Hezekiah the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I've heard thy prayer, I've seen thy tears. And believe me, he could have seen plenty of mine. I'll be honest with you, this is a time, friends, to weep at a time like that. Behold, I'll heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, and I'll add unto thy days fifteen years, and I'll deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, this is quite wonderful, isn't it? The Lord told him, I'll heal you, and I'm going to extend your life 15 years. Now, I've been told nothing like that, and I don't think today that the Lord does that sort of thing. Now, there are several people, including my wife, that has great faith that the Lord will permit me to finish this five-year program. I don't know. I don't have that faith. I just... Go on day by day, and every time I think of it, I ask him to let me do it. I want to finish the five-year program. I have great sympathy for Hezekiah here. This chapter means a great deal to me. I hope it will mean a great deal to many of you out there listening in today. Now he says, and I'll add to thy days 15 years. Now, this is amazing. And Isaiah said, verse 7, 
take a lump of figs, and they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Now, God used natural means to raise him up, but God used also supernatural means. Now, I think this is wonderful. Now, that's exactly what James meant. When James said that you're to anoint him with oil and then call for the elders to pray for the man when he's sick, what he's saying is this. There are two ways that a person could be anointed with oil. One would be ceremonial. The other would be medicinal. Now, a great many people seem to have missed it. But in James, it's medicinal, not ceremonial. Actually, what God is saying through James, and James is very practical, he says, call the doctor, but be sure and call for the elders, the church, to pray for him. And the prayer will raise him up. And so, in this case here, they put figs on him. I think he had that which we call cancer today. It's called a boil here, but I think it would compare to that. And so, God says, I'm going to give you 15 years, but you better put the figs on there. And this idea today that you're not to go to a doctor, I went to what I believe is the best cancer doctor in Southern California. Many people have turned to him because of the case that I've had. But I'd also say that the Lord did it. He says the Lord did it, but he did send the bill, by the way. So, friends, my recommendation is to anyone, let's not be fanatical, let's be sensible. You got cancer? Then face up to it. And that's another wonderful thing my doctor said. He said, I'm not going to deceive you. I'm going to tell you exactly what's wrong with you. Because he says, if I didn't tell you the truth, you'd not have confidence in me. And that's true. I want to know what the facts are. And this man here wanted to know. And believe me, God laid it out before him. God's going to spare him and enable him to live and this is something, though, that's quite interesting. Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? Now, may I say that here again, that's the reason I do not know what the future is. God has given me no sign whatsoever. I want to finish the five-year program. You see, when this happened, I was in the two-and-a-half-year program and uh, I asked the Lord to let me finish the two-and-a-half-year program. When we got to the end of that, I started the five-year program and asked him to let me finish that. And I have a friend. He says, I know you. If the Lord lets you finish the five-year program, you'll start a ten-year program and ask him to get you through that. Well, I said, that's an idea. May I say to you, I think we have a right to go to him. He's my heavenly father, you know. And I want him to lead me down here as long as he possibly can. Somebody says, we're praying that the Lord will take you. I say, you keep your nose out of this. This is between me and the Lord, and you let him handle it. Don't you tell him how to handle it. I want him to let me live. And I think that would be the case of others. But suppose he doesn't. Well, may I say to you, you just have to accept it, don't you? It's not always his will. And I notice in the early church, James was made a martyr. And then what happened to Peter? Peter's delivered from prison. I don't know why one was delivered and the other became a martyr, but all of that's in the providence of God, and it's his will that we're after. And my point is, oh, God, bend me and reconcile me to your will, whatever it is. But I'm going to let him know what I'm thinking about it, and I want him to know what... My will is in it, and I don't agree with anybody that tells I'm praying the Lord will take you. You let the Lord handle that, by the way. I've never prayed that prayer for anyone except those who've asked me. I used to go to see a dear lady, and finally she got in such pain, and she knew she wouldn't get well. She said to me, she says, Dr. McGee, don't pray now for me to get well. Just pray the Lord will take me. And that's what the Lord did, by the way. But I would not do it unless the party wanted me to. Now, we are told here, God gave him a sign. And Isaiah said, verse 9, This sign shalt thou have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go back ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It's a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees, Nay, but let the shadow return backward ten degrees. 
And he gave that as a sign to this man Hezekiah. Now, Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord. He brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. Now, may I say that I'm going to have to make a statement, and this is the thing that blanches my soul. This is something that makes me think twice. Do you notice what happened here? Verse 12, At that time, Baradoc, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah. We'd heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Lovely gesture, sent him a get-well card. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them, showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices, the precious ointment, all the house of his armor, all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house and in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. He did a foolish thing. He let the king of Babylon know the treasure that Solomon had gathered and that the wealth of the world was there. In fact, that cave in Kentucky where we keep the gold, it didn't have near the gold that Solomon had, and he had it stashed away. And it wasn't generally known where it was. But Hezekiah wanted to be big-hearted. These men had brought a good well card from the king of Babylon, so he does this thing. Verse 14, Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? From whence came they unto thee, Hezekiah? Why, they come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in mine house have they seen. I gave them the tour. I rolled out the red carpet for them. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that's in thine house, that which thy fathers have laid up, in store unto this day shall be carried unto Babylon. Nothing shall be left, said the Lord. You see, those ambassadors, they made an inventory. And they took it back to Babylon, and it was stashed away there for the proper time when they needed gold, when they wanted to get the treasures. Here was the place to come. And he says this, And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is the thing that's going to happen to your offspring. You're going to have an offspring now that's be a disgrace to you. Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? I don't like Hezekiah's statement here. What he's saying is, well, it's going to happen. It's getting bad outside, but it won't happen in my day. And as I look about us today, I think some of us older folk, we're going to make it through all right. What about your children? What about your grandchildren today? Now it says the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made a pool and a conduit, brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? We'll see that later, by the way. Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, friends, let me say this, that this man, and this is an awful thing for me to say now, you know, he should have died when the time came for him to die. Somebody said, you don't mean that. I certainly do mean that for the very simple reason that there are three things that took place after God extended his life. One of them, he showed the king of Babylon after he was recovered, and he should never have done that. And he begat a son by the name of Manasseh, as we've seen here. And I want to tell you that he's the most wicked king of any of them. In fact, there are none like him at all. And then the third thing that he did, and this is something that is very tragic, he reveals an arrogance and almost an impudence, by the way. You find here that he not only permitted the ambassadors from Babylon to see his treasures, he not only fathered Manasseh, the worst king of all, but his heart was filled with pride. And it's hard to understand how this could happen to this man. Over in Second Chronicles, the 32nd chapter, verse 25, it says, But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. 
You see, it might have been better if he died at God's appointed time. And that's the reason that this poor preacher today, I tell you, I want to be very careful because I want the Lord to spare me because of the fact I'll do a little good, not because of anything within me, but just because of the fact that I don't want to disgrace him from now on in since he's been so good to spare me even this long. My friend, this is a wonderful chapter. We have a wonderful Heavenly Father. Are you sick? <laughs> oh, don't run to a man or a woman today. Oh, how deceitful that is. Go to your Heavenly Father. And, by the way, he's the great physician. Turn it over to the expert, the specialist. He'll handle your case. Now we come to a chapter that's quite a letdown after the last chapter, and yet has a tremendous message here for us. We saw that this man, Hezekiah, was the best king after David. None to compare to him. He is more like David than any other. And he's like David in some other ways. David didn't do so well as a father, and neither did Hezekiah. His son is the worst king that ever reigned over the southern kingdom. He's bad, friends. He's a real bad man. And we are given his story here, beginning with chapter 21. And it's actually a heartbreak when you read about the son of Hezekiah turning out as he did. I personally believe this. Now, I cannot confirm this. This is my own speculation and my own private opinion. And someone says that you're pretty dogmatic about some of your opinions, and I think that's true. If I thought it was another way, I'd be dogmatic about the other way, but I'm dogmatic about this way. I believe that the Shekinah glory, which Ezekiel was given the vision, left during the reign of Manasseh. Now, the Shekinah glory apparently was here at this time. And if the Shekinah glory didn't leave during the reign of Manasseh, I can't see anything that ever happened afterward that would cause the visible presence of God to leave. And during, uh, apparently, the reign of this man, the Shekinah presence of God left this temple, and it was a desolate temple, just as our Lord said in his day, that your house is left under you. Absolutely, it's a desolate place. It's forsaken of God, and I believe that happened during this time. Now, this fellow's a rascal. Let's look at him. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. Now, I pause to say this. God gave him ample opportunity, you see. He started in as just a 12-year-old boy, and it wasn't long. He was a teenager and in his early 20s. And somebody says, he's young. He'll outgrow it. He didn't outgrow it. He got worse and worse and worse. But God gave him ample opportunity. You see, God is always patient, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Now, notice here, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And Hephzibah is the mother, but Hezekiah is the father. But the mother's name is always given. She will have to accept responsibility. She'll get the credit also. The name of Hezekiah's mother was given. Wonderful mother, apparently. Well, I don't know what Hephzibah did, but this boy is a rascal. Verse 2. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Now, he's as bad as any of the pagans that had been in that land when God put them out and put his people there. Well, he's not going to be there very long. That is, his people are not. They're going to have to leave. Verse 3, notice what he did. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. In other words, Hezekiah got rid of all of this, and I think it was a partial revival that took place during the reign of this man. 
Hezekiah. But now all of that comes to naught because he reared up altars for Baal. He made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel. Now you don't have many worse than Ahab, king of Israel. And he's compared now to him. And he worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. That means he worshiped the sun, moon, stars, and all of the hosts of heaven. Many of them, as you know, have names that pertain to the Greek gods. There was Apollo, there was Diana, and there were the others, by the way. So that he worshiped the host of heaven. Somebody says, my, we've come a long ways. No, we haven't. You can go in the five and ten cent store today and you can get you a little packet there. It'll tell you what you're born and under and tell you all about yourself. There are a lot of people worshiping the host of heaven today. Verse 4, And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. Now, he defied Almighty God. He put altars in the very city. God says, Here's where I set my name, and I don't want any other of the heathen temples here. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, so that he actually not only put altars in the city, put them right in the temple itself. Verse 6, he made his son pass through the fire. That was actually human sacrifice in that day, although it was to heat an image red hot and put a child, a baby, in it. And he either did that or else the child was offered to the heathen god without putting him in the red-hot idol. And he observed times. He used enchantments, and he dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. This is satanic. And he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David, and to Solomon his son in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I have given their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. They're getting ready to travel. They don't know it. But they are getting ready to travel. They're going into Babylonian captivity. Because God says, I'll put you in that land. You'll not move anymore, provided you obey me. Will you notice verse 9? But they hearken not. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Now, not only was he as bad as the heathen, he was worse than the heathen. And I have news for him. They'll be leaving that land. God will not let them stay in that land. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh king of Judah hath done these abominations, he hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing much evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. Just as God had judged both Ahab and Israel, God now is going to judge Jerusalem and Judah. Now listen to this. God says, And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish wiping it and turning it upside down. God says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some dishwashing. I'm going to take them. They're in my land. They're in my dish. God says, I'm going to wipe them right out of that land. Did you ever stop to think, whoever you are listening today, you may think that you're very clever, very sophisticated, and you don't need God. You're walking on his earth. It's his earth. You're breathing his air, by the way, and you're using his sunshine, and you're drinking his water, and he gave you the body that you got. <laughs> May I say to you, God says that every now and then I wash my dishes. When I do, I 
just wipe them out of the land. The nations down through the centuries lie along a highway of time, and they're in rubble and ruin. You know why? They did the same thing that we are doing today, living without God. We don't need him. God says, I'll wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish. And that's something very unusual. It looks to me like husbands dried the dishes in that day when the wives... But I don't want to start anything. I can assure you that, and I hope my wife's not listening. Now let me drop down. God says, I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance. I'll deliver them into the hand of their enemies. They shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. God says, I'm going to take my thumb or my finger out of the dike. The enemy's going to come in like a flood. Verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much. You see, when a man goes into sin or a nation, they don't sin in just one respect. They sin in many respects. Now, we have not only forgotten God today, we've become an immoral nation. There's lawlessness. There's murder. Why, there are companies that are moving out of some of the great metropolis across this nation today to try to get away from the lawlessness. Well, you can't get away from it until this nation returns to God. That's the first step. Oh, you can have law and order. And I get so provoked today with some of these folk. They will turn the spotlight on communism. Well, why don't you turn the spotlight on God? And say, that's what we need today. We're offering nothing but a negative proposition. Let's get rid of communism. Let's get rid of lawlessness. How are you going to get rid of it, friend? You can't get rid of it. You have to turn to God. Now, this man is guilty of murder. And besides his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin, and doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now we're told, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers, buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of his, and Ammon his son reigned in his stead. Now, this is the story of this man. Not much to say other than he was evil and he was corrupt. Verse 19, Ammon was twenty and two years old when he began to reign. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mishalemeth the daughter of Heraz of Jotbah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. He's a bad one too. And so we don't have much about him. Verse 23, the servants of Ammon conspired against him, slew the king in his own house. People of the land slew all them that conspired against King Ammon. Revolution, you see. That's what all of this leads to is revolution. We're today as a nation on the road to revolution. And it's unfortunate, but our leaders seem to be interested in only one thing, and that is to get elected. And it seems like some are actually willing to sell their own country in order to do that. We're living in dangerous days, friends. Now, we're told this man, he was buried in the sepulchre in the garden of us also. And Josiah, his son, reigned in his stead. Now we come to the last of the great kings, and this man, Josiah, was a great king. Not only was he a great king, the greatest revival took place during the time of his reign. Will you notice now, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Notice how young these kings are. Why are they so young when they begin? Well, Papa got killed. God removed him. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, and she's the daughter of Adiah, of Boscath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the way of David his father. And he turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. Now the sun's come up again. The light is shining again in the land. Now, this man begins a movement that led to the greatest revival these people ever had after David and Solomon. Now, there are certain things that we want to say that 
are important about revival. I believe the first thing we all need as Christians to recognize is revival is personal and individual. I don't think that it will begin as a mass movement. I don't think it ever has in the past, by the way. You go back and look at the great revivals in the past, and very candidly, I'm of the opinion that you'll discover that they began with certain individuals. My firm conviction today is that the only thing that can save our nation at this time is revival. It's either revival or revolution. I'm confident it has to be one or the other in this dark hour in which we have come as a nation. So I want us to look at it because our nation needs a revival. There is corruption in government at all levels. There's corruption in all organizations. Immorality and lawlessness abound. Sex and liquor, drugs, filthy magazines, foul pictures, scandals and riots. And this nation right now is wallowing like a pig in the swine's thigh. We're like the prodigal in a far country in the pig pen down with the pigs. And it's revival or revolution that stares us in the face. Creeping socialism, political parties willing to sell the birthright of this nation in order to stay in power, and the church under the blight of apostasy. Liberalism controls the organized church. And there is a brazen denial of the Word of God even in so-called evangelical circles. And the Word of God's been lost in the church. There are atheists today in the pulpit, and that's what had happened in that day. It's quite interesting. You listen to these folk on television and radio from all walks of life, and you've got to be an oddball to get on television today. As you well know, you've got to have some weird sort of thing. Everybody that you hear, they've got to plan a program to get you and me straightened out and to get us to do something. And the trouble of it is I'm being taxed to death. I don't know about you, but this is going to have to come to an end one of these days. So that today, all of them, they're telling everybody else, but they're doing nothing for themselves. And as I listen to some of these weirdos, I think that probably a revival could help them. And if they'd only get straightened out, be a lesson to us. Revival is personal, and that's where it'll have to begin. It's not a mass movement. This man, King Josiah, right at the top, had to get straightened out. And what we need today is not politicians calling other politicians crooks. It's one politician saying... I've been wrong, and I'm going to get right with God. That would be such a strange thing that I'm afraid it would frighten the nation if it happened. But it's what we need today. We need some man to say, my heart is fixed. Oh, God, my heart is fixed. Will you notice there's a sound here now of an abundance of rain. Verse 3, came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of the doers of the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work, which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. And I like this. The Lord's money was to be used for those that are doing something for it. My friend, when you find out that today any organization or any individual is not doing something for the Lord, I don't care who they are, they do not deserve our support at all. God says, let's turn this money over to the doers. Somebody's going to do something. Verse 6, under carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand, because they dealt faithfully. I tell you, there are 
certain churches today that are always issuing financial statements and you can't even believe them. I tell you how they can patch them up and make them actually very deceitful. And they say, well, you know, figures don't lie. That's true. But liars really figure today. And we have here marvelous men. These men, they didn't have to give a report. They were faithful. They could be trusted. Now, the first thing they did was to repair the temple. The temple wasn't in use, you see. In fact, it had just become sort of a warehouse, a storage bin for the odds and ends. Now, the church today is very much like that. It's in great need of repair, not the buildings. They are building beautiful new buildings. I stayed in a motel back east some time ago, and there was a church right across the street. I was told it cost a half a million dollars. The week I was there, I noticed that on Sunday morning, before I left for where I was speaking, that church had about 25 cars out in front for a Sunday morning service. They didn't have many more on Sunday night, and it was dark the rest of the week. That place needs repairing, let me tell you. And our conservative churches, they are torn asunder by strife and bickering. Huge plants, attractive. But my friend, the Spirit of God is not there. It looks as if the Lord Jesus has said, Your house is left unto you desolate. And the church today is not witnessing. It should be out witnessing. You frighten the church when you talk to them about witnessing for Christ today. And we do not need any more pious platitudes and the saccharine sweetness that we're hearing and the backslapping and the hand-pumping. And may I say, some of these service clubs, these knife and fork clubs meet during the week, they do it better than the church does, this business of backslapping. What we need today, friends, is to get the church inside straightened out. And then there must be the third thing that we have here, and that was a return to the Word of God. And will you notice, verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. They lost the Bible and they lost it in the church. And now they found the Word of God. And that's the only thing that you've got as a weapon, friends. It's the Word of God that's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. There's no shortcut today, easy route. There's no new method to revival. And we have a flood tide of books on Christian experience. And I've looked over quite a few of these books. May I say to you, these books are as dead as a doornail. What is the problem? They are presenting a method instead of presenting the Word of God. Nobody seems to be saying, let's come back to the Word of God. Oh, somebody said, but we need to read so-and-so's book. No, we don't. We need to come back to the Word of God and forget what so-and-so's book says. In fact, the matter is you can forget what Vernon McGee's book says. You don't need that. We need to get back to the Word of God today. It's not the book of the month. It's the book of the ages that we need today. And that's the thing that is important. I was with a very fine young preacher, and he was questioning me, and I began to question him. He wanted to know my method of study and that sort of thing. And I found out that he knew all the latest books. In fact, he rather embarrassed me. He said to me, have you seen so-and-so? And I said, no. you seen so-and-so? And I said, no. you seen so-and-so? And I said, no, I haven't seen it. And he said, have you quit reading books? I said, yes, I'm retired now. I said, I very frankly pretty much read up and the modern books that are coming out don't seem to interest me at all. They're all presenting a method. And he said, well, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading the Bible. And I then asked him the pointed question. I said, how much time do you spend in a week in the Word of God? My friend, you'd be amazed if you heard he spent less than an hour in the Word of God. And he'd already told me about the problems he was having and what I suggested. Very easy now to give him a remedy. He needed to get to the Word of God. Verse 9, And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, 
thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house. They delivered into the hand of them that do the work and have the oversight of the house of God. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Why, they lost the word of God in that day. You know, that's a terrible place to lose the Bible is in church, but that's where it's been lost today. How many churches in this land really rest upon the Word of God and preach it? Now, I thank God for the many letters that I get. And all over this land, there's still many faithful pastors. We're trying to hold up their hands and help as best we possibly can. But my friend, how many today have departed? They've lost the Bible in the church. And you remember, the parents of Jesus lost him at the temple. Believe me, Jesus is lost in church today, and the Bible is lost in church. Both of them have been lost today. And here, they find the Word of God. Where do they find it? Out on the dump heap? No. They find it in the temple. They lost it. And friends, the Bible has to be the beginning of revival. Now, I think it's wonderful that there's so many groups praying for revival. I wish they'd spend a little more time in the Word of God because it's a return to the Word of God that brings revival. Oh, how tremendous this is. Verse 11, It came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, he ran his clothes. It wasn't one of these nice little groups I hear about. Oh, we're going to have an evangelistic campaign. We're going to have a banquet and call in all the preachers, and we're going to talk sweet talk, and we're going to talk optimistically, and we're going to get everybody together. Oh, you are? My friend, what we need to do is to get together and hear the Word of God. And if we'll really hear the Word of God today, there'll be some rending of our clothes. We'll go down on our faces before him. I heard of a man. He's a wonderful Christian. He got up before a group of church officers, and he told them, he says, what this church needs is for this group of officers to get out on their faces before God and repent. You know what they did? They got rid of him. <laughs> they didn't want him around. I want to tell you today, many so-called Bible churches Many so-called fundamental churches, many so-called evangelistic meetings today are as far from the Bible as anything possibly can be. Oh, I tell you, if we really came to the Word of God, it would bring conviction. And you would hear weeping, and there'd be rending of clothes today. That's when you have revival. We're not seeing it in America today. Pray for our land, friends. We need prayer today. We don't need all these meetings that are taking place. And we always turn in a healthy report of the thousands. Oh, my friend, we need to get to the Word of God. And when we do, it'll have its effect.